Good morning, Grace Fullerton. I worship over uh, in La Mirada, um, and so it's great to come over here and see faces that I haven't seen in a while. Uh, I sat in the youth section today, I guess. <laughs> um, and some new faces, too. So, um, yeah, it's wonderful to be here. Um, I'm going to start this morning uh, with a few questions, all right? little uh, audience interaction, congregational survey. Show of hands is all I'm looking for. All right, first question, ready? Uh, how many of you have heard of Ronald Wayne? He is uh, currently living in a mobile home park in Parump, Nevada. Ronald Wayne. All right. Um, how many of you have heard of Steve Jobs? Okay, most of you. That's good. Well, Ronald Wayne actually was one of Apple Computer's three co-founders along with Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. Two weeks after he helped co-found the company, he sold his 10% share for the sweet profit of $800, <laughs> which today would be worth $60 billion. Yeah. All right, another question. Uh, what about Mike Smith? Anybody? Probably everybody knows Mike Smith, right? Okay, so uh, this Mike Smith was a talent scout for Decca Records in the 60s. <laughs> Laura knows everybody. Okay, how many of you heard of that Mike Smith? <laughs> okay, a couple. Uh, well, this, okay, one more question. How many of you have heard of the Beatles? Okay, well, this Mike Smith was the talent scout who auditioned the Beatles New Year's Day, 1962, and dismissed them <laughs> with a note to the label execs which read, guitar bands are on the way out. The Beatles have no future in show business. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you Googled missed opportunities, okay? <laughs> Those two names, as I did this last week, <laughs> those two names would be at the top of the list. Right? And uh, as colossal uh, as those blunders seem to us, um, I don't really think okay, that in the grand scheme of things, okay, or better, the divine scheme of things, I don't really think um, they're all that significant. I mean, what did uh, Mike Smith and Ronald Wayne lose, really? They lost money. That's it. What about the father who may be making all the right investment decisions, okay, but doesn't disciple his children, doesn't take the opportunity to invest in them? What, what has he lost? You know, before the service, no, in the middle of the service, I went over and said, uh, greeted Jesse Howland, but I accidentally called him Gerald. And I laughed. I said, I just, call, I, just called you, I just called you Gerald. He goes, that's okay. I don't mind getting confused with my dad at all. <laughs> wow. Uh, what has that guy lost? He's lost a lot. Or the young woman who may be carefully uh, cultivating all the externals, you know, the right 
friends, uh, right hair, right looks, everything. Okay, but doesn't, doesn't, but neglects that that more difficult, arduous work of inner beauty, self-sacrifice, patience, kindness. What has she lost? Right. Uh, so when I think of uh, colossal miscalculations and tragic missed opportunities, those are the kinds of scenarios, right, that come to my mind. And also, faces come to mind. Okay. Faces lined with pain, uh, sorrow, heartbreak. This morning, we have in front of us three incidents from um, Jesus' ministry. And each of them tells the story of an epic, epic missed opportunity. Um, And as I um, read through this material, there are a lot of really important um, themes in the picture. In fact, the outline in your bulletin, I think, is, I think is my third attempt uh, as I try to get my mind around this material. But my, my heart kept coming back to this one idea prominent in each one of these episodes. And that's the tragedy okay, of rejecting God's willing offer of healing, salvation, and wholeness. Having, uh, in the first story, God's son among you, okay, uh, with power to heal and to save, uh, or in the next story, having his emissaries knocking at your door with the power to banish the evil that torments you. Or in the final episode, having his prophet pleading with you trying to turn you from a path that will destroy you and saying, nah, I'm good. I got this. I don't need and I don't want what you're offering. How is that possible? How do you get there? But What I especially want us to see is that these stories uh, are not about, you know, those people in Nazareth or uh, those villages in in Galilee or that evil Herod Antipas, okay? They're about us. They're about you and they're about me. I know how you get there because I've been there. So the big question that I want us to be thinking about, processing, mulling over as we, as we walk through these stories is this. How can we thwart God's purposes within us and among us? So let me pray, and I will read the first episode. Father, thank you, Lord, that... You are with us. You're in us. You are uh, drawing us, Lord. Your Son is interceding for us. Open our eyes. Open our eyes. Open my eyes this morning. In your Son's name. Amen. All right. uh, Mark 6, 1. I'm going to begin at verse 1. Uh, Jesus left there 
and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom? They said, what, what's this wisdom that's been given to him, that he does miracles? And isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? The brother of James and Joseph, Judas, Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, uh, in order to understand this story properly, as Mark intended, we have to recall the immediately preceding events, okay, detailed in chapters uh, 4 and 5, okay? At the end of chapter 4, Jesus wakes up in the middle of a raging storm at sea, right? He, uh, and with, with sort of a yawn, stretch of his arms, he calms the wind and the waves, right? Chapter 5. Uh, he stares down a legion of demons, hurls them into the abyss. Okay? And just prior to arriving in Nazareth, he meets death itself with a shrug. Little girl, arise. Wow. What is it that stops him in his tracks? that stops him from doing what he has come to do. Unbelief. Listen to verse 5 again. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hand on a few people, uh, sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. You know, um, you read the Gospels and there's a lot of amazing going on. Right? Um, the crowds are amazed at his teaching. The people are amazed at his, his miracles. The disciples are amazed at his powers. The teachers of the law are amazed at his responses. Um, uh, the Pharisees are amazed that Jesus doesn't wash his hands before dinner, right? Jesus is amazing even when he's not doing anything. At the end of the gospel, we read, we read this. Um, and Pilate was amazed that Jesus did not answer anything concerning the charges against him. On two occasions, however, it is Jesus who is amazed. One, probably earlier th than this, uh, Mark 6, he is asked by a Roman centurion, Roman Gentile, foreigner, a Roman centurion to heal his servant who is close to death. Uh, as Jesus turns to go with him, the centurion says, no, stop. <laughs> I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Then he explains, for... I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers unto me, under me. 
I say to one, come, and he comes. I say to another, go, and he goes. The Gospels tell us, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said, never have I seen such faith in all Israel. The other incident is here in Mark 6. Okay, in Jesus' own hometown, with his relatives, uh, in the community he grew up in, uh, he is amazed at their lack of faith. And so he was unable to do any miracles among them. Because we can thwart um, God's purposes for our lives, his intention to heal, to to bless, to bring, to bring life from death by refusing to believe in His Son, in His, in his power, His purpose, His mission, um, His intention, His identity. I think all of those, those things are at play when we hear the responses of the people at Nazareth. Who is this guy? Don't We know him. He's the carpenter. His brothers and sisters? Nah. Now, I... I uh, I don't suppose we're, we're, we're to think of the relationship between Jesus and um, unbelief as, as sort of akin to uh, Superman and kryptonite, right? Okay? So that, you know, if, if it ever gets near him, he's just ugh, suddenly enfeebled and, you know, can't heal anybody. <laughs> no, it's not like that. But God has determined that Faith, okay, faith in Jesus. Not faith in ourselves, okay? Not, as the song goes, confidence in confidence alone, right? Okay, faith in His Son is the mechanism which, which unleashes God's power into our lives. In fact, faith is so important. We have one story where Jesus heals somebody without even knowing it. Because they had faith. Remember last week, the woman with the issue of blood, right? She, Jesus is making his way through this really thick crowd. Um, and this woman presses her way towards him, saying to herself, uh, if only I could touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. <sighs> That's how I imagine it. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus... Um, as Mark tells us, feels the power go out from him and turns and says, who touched me? The disciples, of course, are like Jesus. <laughs> People are pressing on every side. True. One person had faith. And as she reached out in faith, the Father reached down in compassion. Faith. Probably, probably the most piercing words in the Gospels for me personally come from Luke 18. Jesus is speaking of those who, um, who call out to their Heavenly Father night and day. And He promises they will receive justice. And then He concludes by saying, But when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? In that parable, faith is demonstrated by 
persistence in prayer, um, approaching the Father in faith, knowing that He can do whatever we ask, and believing that He wants to do even more than what we ask. Right? Well, there were a few people in Nazareth who, who believed, who reached out in faith to Jesus. These returned home with healthy bodies and thankful hearts. Right? The others missed an opportunity of a lifetime. That's a warning. <laughs> Don't miss that opportunity. Ah. Sometimes, however, maybe usually, um, Jesus approaches us in ways that we might not expect. Let's look at the next, uh, next story. Beginning um, in the end of verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. This would be in Galilee. Uh, calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. When you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet as you leave. As a testimony against them. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many people with sick people with oil and healed them. Okay, so uh, Jesus has been uh, preparing um, his disciples, the twelve, for this uh, for this venture for months. Right? Um, uh, they have uh, seen him heal and perform staggering. Miracles, right? Um, they've seen him cast out, you know, a legion of demons. They've listened to him teach, okay? Uh, and they have seen him experience rejection. First in the Decapolis, and then again in Nazareth, okay? Now they're ready, okay? He's commissioning, empowering, dispatching them as his emissaries on his mission. Uh, he's sort of multiplying himself, right, and, and sending them out. In particular, with the power over unclean spirits, Mark emphasizes. Now, the restrictions he places on them, no bread, no bag, no money, you know, one shirt, uh, probably aimed at forcing them to rely solely on God's provision, because nothing will cause you to look to God more intently, more quickly, uh, more hopefully, more determinedly than empty pockets, right? But um, they also, uh, these restrictions would have had the effect, I think, of uh, rendering them far from uh, auspicious as they entered uh, a village, okay? Um, these were um, commissioned emissaries of the king of kings uh, with power to heal illnesses, you know, expel uh, demons and preach repentance. But they probably looked more like uh, 
homeless indigents. And Jesus warns them, some people are not going to welcome you or listen to you. Be prepared. Because we can thwart God's purpose among us, not only by failing to believe in his son, but by failing to uh, recognize and welcome, receive his emissaries, those people um, he has sent into our life to speak truth and to restore. Last week, last week you had here Michael and Samantha Owen, right? Okay, uh, Grace Missionaries uh, in Guam uh, who were in town because they received the Clyde C. Cook Alumni Award in Missions from Biola University. That's a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah. I remember Michael Owen when he first walked into my Greek class years ago. Long hair, flip-flops, heavy metal, rock t-shirt. Did right? I say to myself, ah, here sits a future recipient of the Clyde C. Cook Alumni Award in Missions. No, I did not. I thought to myself, honestly, and Mike and I have laughed about this, I thought to myself, this kid is not going to survive my Greek class. In fact, he killed my Greek class. <laughs> I couldn't devise an exam he couldn't ace. <laughs> and he didn't even take any notes. It was really annoying. <laughs> so little did I know when he wanders into my Greek class so many years ago that soon I'd be mentoring this kid. Soon he'd be serving with me in children's ministry. Soon he'd marry a wonderful young lady. Mike and I don't have much in common, but this we have in common. We both married very well. <laughs> Soon he'd, be, he'd marry Sam, and he and Sam, with my wife and I, would be leading a grace group. Little did I know that I would be sending my son to Guam <laughs> with this kid. Wow. Mike and Sam have been an amazing blessing to so many people. Um, as ministers of the gospel, and that's what all of us are, right? Ministers of the gospel. I think this passage is telling us that we can expect rejection. It's also telling us, I think, warning us to welcome, to receive, to listen to those people Christ has sent us as his emissaries for our good. Um, and that's not always easy, okay? Especially um, if there's a critique or admission or prophetic um, exhortation involved. So here's a few guidelines. Um, they're not foolproof, they're just guidelines on how we can discern that, all right? First, the content of the message. Um, is it in conformity to scripture? Um, uh, Gospel principles and values, perspective, ethics. Second, the character of the messenger. Um, is it in conformity to Christ? That is, uh, do you trust them? 
Okay, have confidence in them. Um, or do you sense that maybe they might be in it for themselves in some way? Now, I can tell you three stories from my earlier days of young men I knew, Christian, good guys who received a word from the Lord that they were supposed to marry a young lady. Okay? Now, the Lord didn't inform the young ladies of their <laughs> impending nuptials, okay? Um, and in each case, it just so happened to be that the young lady was beautiful. Uh, three different guys, three different young ladies. Um, in my experience, I have to say, I've never had a guy get a word from the Lord that they were supposed to marry someone, you know, who was homely or plain or something like that, okay? <laughs> if you sense there might be some self-interest, okay, that's a warning sign. You need to get the opinion of someone else, okay? By the way, one of those, happily married today. The other two, phew, they got good advice. Third, and this may be the most important, um, is your conscience pricked, all right? And that is, what, what I mean is, does it touch a chord within you? Do you find yourself saying, ouch? Okay, because our conscience uh, is like that warning light on our dashboard, okay? Don't ignore it. <laughs> Don't cover it up with tape, all right? Uh, take care of it. Or the cost is going to be much higher. It could cost you your life. But those villages that did welcome and receive um, and, and listen, as verse 12 tells us, not only um, saw demons expelled and, and maladies cured, okay, they heard the good news of repentance, right? Inner and outer wholeness, okay, body and soul renewed. <sighs> But, you know, not every uh, story in the Gospels has that silver lining, okay? Um, this next story is just dark. Um, there's no happy ending. There's no moral, no obvious moral for us to tuck in our pockets, you know, and, and think about, take home. Uh, it's brutal and it's grim. Let me read, starting at verse 14. Mark 6. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Flashback. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. 
But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. He's got a problem with beautiful women, doesn't he? <laughs> she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? She answered, the head of John the Baptist. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and the dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took the body and laid it in a tomb. Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. Uh, he inherited a portion of his father's kingdom, uh, all of his father's ambition, and none of his father's wits. He divorced his first wife, the daughter of a powerful Nabataean king, when he fell in love with Herodias, the beautiful wife of his half-brother, Philip. Herodias, sensing her fortunes would increase with Antipas, divorces Philip, moves to Galilee, marries Antipas. Enter John the Baptist. Among those born of women, Jesus tells us, no one is greater than John. So, the stage is set for a conflict. Because John was a prophet, and he was not intimidated by Herod or Herodias, and he certainly was not going to turn a blind eye to corruption and immorality, be it in the priesthood in Jerusalem or the palace in Tiberias. And he calls them out publicly, condemning them. And Herodias was incensed. She wants him dead. Antipas, uh, Seems caught in the middle, right? He, um, he has some measure of respect for um, John. Um, did you catch verse 20? He knows he's right. <laughs> Herod protected him knowing he was a righteous and holy man. Yet 
he's unable to rein in his wife, and so he has John arrested. Now, that seems to solve both problems, okay? It silences John's public criticism while protecting John from Herodias. But he underestimates her cunning and treachery. Guys, single guys, <laughs> let me talk to you for a minute. Here's my favorite proverb. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman with no discretion. Proverb 11.22. But I have known guys who were willing to marry a pig because all they could see is a little gold ring. Inevitably, one day, they wake up, they roll over and scream, ah, I've married a pig. Okay, that gold ring, it may still be there, but it may not. The pig is going nowhere. Smelly, hairy, snorting. <laughs> Guys, it's, it's a good thing to marry for beauty as long as you know what beauty is. All right, gals, it's your turn. What price can you put on character? You know, on the determination to do what is right and just and good, even when it hurts, even when you don't want to. Uh, what's more important, a man who's ambitiously climbing the ladder uh, or a man who's humble, just, loyal? Now, don't misunderstand me. Um, healthy aspirations and drive and, and direction is a good thing. And I'm, I am concerned when I don't see that in a young man. But listen um, to these very wise words from a very wise woman who remained single all her life, counseled many, many uh, younger women. She said this, it is better to be single and wish you were married than to be married and wish you were single. I've counseled those people too. It's good advice. Herod and Herodias. They deserve each other, really. Now, John... You'll remember, he grew up in a priestly family, right? Okay, He grew up reading the law and the prophets. Um, and one lesson he learned well is that sin breaks the heart of God and spells calamity for the nation, especially when it's perpetrated by its kings and leaders. Um, so in a, in a sense, John is trying to keep Herod, you know, from heading off a cliff. And if you apply those three criteria that we mentioned earlier uh, concerning testing a prophetic word to this situation, what do we find? Content of the message, 
Check. Character of the messenger? Check. Conscience pricked? Check. But Herod doesn't listen. He ignores him. Uh, he knew that John was a righteous prophet speaking a just word. But he says, nah, I'm good. I got this. A third way we can thwart God's purpose uh, among us is when we fail to obey his prophetic witness, be it through scripture, seen in scripture, or uh, through those people he has sent into our lives for that purpose. So, what happened to Herod and Herodias? They went off that cliff. You remember that powerful Nabataean king, uh, the father of the daughter whom Antipas divorced and dishonored. He wanted vengeance. Okay? He soon marches against Antipas. Okay? And crushes him in a humiliating defeat. Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian, tells us that the popular sentiment at the time was that this crushing defeat was God's judgment on Antipas for beheading John the Baptist. But wait, the story's not done because Herodias is not done with her scheming. A few years later, uh, when her brother, Agrippa, um, is given the title king by um, uh, Caesar, she, uh, over neighboring Judea, she um, goads and presses and nags Antipas okay, to sail to Rome and petition the emperor for the same title. His official title was Tetrarch, not king. Antipas reluctantly gives in and makes the trip to Rome. Now, uh, it's worth contrasting here uh, Herod Antipas with his father, Herod the Great. Now, I'm a New Testament historian, so just indulge me for just a minute. Um, Herod the Great would have never been bullied by one of his wives into such a foolish grasp for power. He would have divorced her or banished her or executed her. He had ten wives, and that tended to be their fate. He was a true despot, but he wouldn't be conned or manipulated. Herod the Great also had a very fateful uh, meeting with a Roman emperor. Um, under much uh, more dire, difficult circumstances, you see, Herod the Great had backed the wrong horse in the Civil War. Mark Antony. When Octavian emerges triumphant over uh, Antony, Herod 
is it in a dilemma. He's got a difficult decision to make. He could uh, pack his bags, get out of Dodge, um, maybe, maybe take refuge in Parthia outside of Rome's reach. Or he could sail to Octavian's command center on the island of Rhodes and take his chances with Octavian, who might just execute him on the spot. He decides to sail to Rhodes, but he leaves his diadem and his regalia behind and approaches Augustus as a commoner. He uh, openly admits his misguided uh, support for Mark Antony, but then tells Augustus this, do not consider to whom I have been a friend, but consider how loyal I am to my friends. Augustus was impressed. Herod returns to Jerusalem with Rome as an ally. Herod Antipas, on the other hand, all of his father's ambition, none of his father's wits, embarks on this fool's errand to Caligula. Okay, Caligula was a madman. He was barking, I mean, crazy. Um, and as a reward, he gets exile, banishment, stripped of title, of territory, of property. Thank you, Herodias. Of course, Antipas is just as guilty, right? I mean, spineless and pathetic, he beheads the very man who's holding up the sign, danger, cliff, ahead, right? Herodias, Herod, die in obscurity, exiled in distant Gaul, never heard from again. But at least they had each other. <laughs> okay? Which in this case is exactly what they deserved. Um, that's the rest of the story. Now, none of us want to end up like that, right? Exiled in distant Gaul. Um, but none of us want to thwart God's purposes in our lives, right? His intention uh, to heal and to renew, be it through a, a necessary rebuke um, or the willing offer of, of his blessing. But we have seen that all throughout this chap chapter, each of these episodes. That's the choice that was made. And I think if we are honest, okay, we probably can see that proclivity, that inclination in our own hearts, okay? Um, uh, uh, times where we, like Jesus' friends in Nazareth, just refuse to believe. He can't help me. Uh, maybe um, uh, like those villages in, Naz in Galilee, sometimes we just don't want to receive that emissary that's been sent to us for our good. Maybe like Antipas, there are times where we have just ignored prophetic rebuke. That was then. This is now. This is us. What about us? This week. 
Okay, what decisions will we make? What decisions will I make? Will I go into this week believing that Jesus is with me to help, to heal, to empower? Uh, will I, will we welcome those people into our lives um, for our good and benefit, even if it's a prophetic rebuke? Will we listen to a prophetic rebuke when we hear it? Will we harden our hearts? Okay. This is what I want us to be thinking about this week. This is what I want to be thinking about this week. I'm going to pray and pray with me as I walk through these decisions just one last time. Father, oh, help us, Lord. Um, give us your grace. We need that abundantly. Lord, are there times when we just refuse to believe? When we refuse to believe that Jesus and his identity, his purpose, his mission, his, his presence with us, there are times when we don't reach out in faith to him. Lord, help us. Forgive us. Lord, are there times when we just don't welcome those people you've sent into our lives? We avoid them, turn them away. Lord, forgive us. Help us. Help us to recognize and receive and welcome. Lord, help us always to obey your prophetic rebuke. It may not come through a prophet, Lord. It may come through a piece of music we hear, a conversation we have. It may be a friend. Lord, help us. Help us to hear your rebuke. In your son's name, amen.